scattered souls on stolen land left searching for our beginnings they done put that flag down on blood stained sand and a chain link cross just for decoration said that this was the home of the brave when it's really the home of our slavers some will fight just to stay alive but i'd rather die to see freedom Race Capital with me, Naomi Isaac, and today we're talking emancipation. You see, Juneteenth is a holiday that commemorates the emancipation of enslaved peoples within the settler occupation we've come to know as the United States of America. And while we honor the struggles of our ancestors who survived the gruesome brutality of chattel slavery, who endured a violent kidnapping from the coasts of West Africa, who persisted generations of genocide, we also recognize the truth. And that is that the enslavement and exploitation of black people in this rotten settler colonial project did not end with the Emancipation Proclamation. In fact, over 2 million people remain captives by incarceration in the United States with black, indigenous, trans, disabled, and low-income folks being impacted the most. For generations, our people have resisted against forced labor and bondage with those of us who have the fortune of evading capture, joining hands with those whose wrists still remain chained in iron shackles. The movement for the abolition of slavery, which undoubtedly includes the dismantling of prisons and policing, has never had a shortage of prisoner resistance. The legacy of those like Harriet Tubman and Nat Turner who inspired people to join them in a struggle for collective liberation, all while operating as either captives or fugitives of the state, lives on within us in our movement. It is the folks on the inside and those most affected by the violence of carceral systems who continue to educate, agitate, and organize a resistance against the disenfranchisement of oppressed people. Together, we will lift the sky with the ashes of the American plantation fading away into the earth beneath our feet. This week on Race Capital, we skip the reframe to discuss inside-outside solidarity movements taking place across the country. We sit down with Prison Lives Matter members Nick Grevins from IDOC Watch and Kwame Shakur, co-founder and chairman of the New African Liberation Collective. We close the show with words from freedom fighter and former Black Panther member Asada Shakur. You're listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Stay tuned. I'm joined here today with Nick Grevin from IDOC Watch. I'm going to go ahead and let Nick introduce himself to our listeners. Uh, hi, I'm the general coordinator for IDOC Watch currently. Uh, I've been in that position for uh, three years, give or take. One of the founders of the organization, too. Um, IDOC Watch is a prisoner-led abolitionist organization uh, in Indiana. IDOC stands for Indiana Department of Correction. So I'm, yeah, as the general coordinator, I'm just sort of, you know, taking care of administrative stuff a lot of the time. 
Cool. So can you talk to us, Nick, a little bit about how IDOC Watch uh, came to be? Uh, Just give us a little background of the formation of the organization. Yeah. IDOC Watch came to be because uh, I met a long-term politically active prisoner named Angaza Iman Bahar um, through the Midwest Pages to Prisoners Project in Bloomington. And around, and we started, you know, talking and collaborating discussing political ideas and issues in the prisons. And that relationship developed over the course of uh, like two or three years, helped edit a book he wrote and stuff like that. Um, And then around the same time, a a group, another group that was in Bloomington that had been working with politically active prisoners in Indiana, including a lot of the other leaders of IDOC, people who are now leaders of IDOC Watch, on the inside, their group was um, raided and uh, sort of fell apart as a result of that. But they had put together this book that I highly recommend people who are interested in um, inside out prisoner, prison abolition and prisoner solidarity work read called Down, uh, Reflections on Prison Resistance in Indiana. And so we, people that I was working with in in, uh, a student organization at the time started reaching out to some of the people that they had been connected to, to sort of reestablish an inside out movement. And so that's how it got started. And it's uh, just developed pretty slowly over five years, give or take. So now we have chapters in different cities in the state, um, but we're still very small, really. Um, And we have study groups in several prisons. Uh, we have a newsletter that we distribute on the inside and out, and we have started to establish a reentry program or transitional housing and employment program and like mental health support, et cetera, et cetera, like, you know, just support services for people who have been involved uh, while incarcerated, you know, to help them, you know, get on their feet when they get out. And yeah, we're trying to build a network of uh, family and loved ones of incarcerated people to fight back and start to push for decarceration initiatives. But, you know, to be honest, it's pretty slow going with, with that. It's all, it's all pretty slow going because <laughs> the obstacles are, you know, immense. The obstacles, yeah. I mean, everything about abolition is a slow going process. And so, yeah, I just wanted to, just in the spirit of Juneteenth and, you know, kind of talking about emancipation, right? The emancipation of enslaved Africans um, and and knowing that, you know, that emancipation was never came to fruition, that folks are still incarcerated and enslaved each and every day by uh, this colonial project. Can you just talk to us a little bit about how uh, IDOC sees the functions of modern day prisons and what you all's vision is for the future? Yeah, our vision for the future is a... Ma- is mass struggle in many sites, you know, in society against the prison system, um, which can take many forms. Um, you know, if you look back to the things that people were doing in the 60s and 70s, um, we'd like to get to a point where, you know, students at, at universities and high schools are taking over their campuses or campus buildings in um, solidarity with prisoners who are on hunger strike or rebelling in you know any number of different ways um, and you know sort of mass mass movement that can encompass a whole lot of different tactics um, so that's sort of the vision um, I would recommend an article that was recently published on uh, the Abolition Media Worldwide website called 
radical resistance for prison abolition. That's sort of a sketch of what an effective prison abolition struggle would look like by a captive, a currently captive New African revolutionary. And then in terms of the the function of prisons, the you know the way that we understand it is the first, well, let me, let me put it this way. The prison industrial complex emerged or was established out of the repression of the black power and other liberation struggles of the 60s and 70s. And that is its purpose, is to repress um, black people, especially new Africans and poor people in general. So its first, first purpose is genocide um, and colonial subjugation. And then, you know, close second purpose is class domination, you know, keeping the working class impoverished and desperate and, and unable to struggle for itself as a class. And, and then, you know, there's, there's other sort of um, tertiary purposes, um, like, like maintaining um, white racism um, by this whole process of sort of removing the poor and essentially predominantly black and brown people from urban areas and taking their bodies, well, them as people, but taking them to rural places where they, where their bodies are counted as part of the population, but they don't have a right to speak or vote, uh, which is like a really effective way of stalling any kind of social progress. It sounds a lot like the three-fifths rule that emerged out of the South, right? It sounds like it never really went away. Yeah, yeah, it's almost, well, it's almost exactly the same, and it's more like it was spread throughout society um, rather than being eliminated. Um, one thing that we like to point out is that the purpose of prisons is not, the main purpose of prison is not profit, it's social control and national or racial and class domination. That's the primary purpose. The profit mechanism is just is like something that is like a spinoff that obviously is, um, you know, an, an incentive for capital to keep it going or incentivizes its expansion and, um, and maintenance. But uh, it's not actually the main objective of the prison industrial complex. And just as a, a just recommendation, there's a really great essay by Elizabeth Hinton she she's a historian she wrote an essay called uh, a war within our own boundaries um i forget the subtitle but you can just look up elizabeth hinton and um, a war within our own boundaries and she's the author of a book called from the war on poverty to the war on crime as well which is about the roots of mass incarceration in the repression of the the black liberation struggle of the 60s and 70s and you know it's eerily similar to what we're seeing right now also with uh the way the democrats are um, tying, you know, new police, new funding for police and prisons to, you know, quote unquote, police reform. Yeah. And you, you touched on, um, you said something about how you, you all, IDOC Watch, uh, is attempting to bring down all the structures of mass incarceration. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, what those systems might be? Because, you know, folks see the cages and they think, okay, like, that's what we mean when we say abolish prisons. But can you talk about how um, expansive uh, prison really is and, and uh, what are some of the other institutions of incarceration and social control that you were just talking about? Yeah, the entire criminal legal system, the quote unquote justice system is, you know, all needs to be abolished. That's like the prison industrial complex. There's the whole criminal legal system. And then there's all of these businesses just 
profit off of the criminal legal system, hunting people down and putting them in cages. From the food services in the jails and prisons to the public defender associations that don't do anything to free people or rarely do anything to free people. I don't want to get on all public defenders, but the majority. A lot, a lot of lawyers are making a ton of money and not doing anything to help their clients. We have so many examples of situations where lawyers have taken thousands of dollars from people who couldn't afford to spend a thousand dollars or thousands of dollars to help their loved ones get out of prison and never done anything for those people at all, like nothing. So yeah, all of that. I mean, there's the whole nonprofit complex that's been developed around reentry, where people are just profiting off of the fact that people are desperate when they get out of prison and they, they appear to a less critical analysis to be helping people, but they're really just hyper exploiting people. I find it so important to list out everything that you just mentioned, just because even in a colonial context, when folks think of enslavement and slavery, you know, they limit the the scope of the violence to the folks that were placing the chains on folks. But like you said, there are people who are supporting the feeding of the plantations. There are folks who are selling, who were selling equipment to the plantations. And those industries have only evolved as enslavement has evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important that we definitely make those connections. Um, can you tell me what, you know, organizing an inside outside structure has looked like, what that resistance has looked like, what the pushback has looked like from, um, you know, folks with power and, and those that continue to want to see um, new African folks, poor folks, indigenous people, queer folks uh, incarcerated? Um, just what has been your experience or the organization's experience from police and the prisons uh, as you all have been doing this work? Yeah, I mean, there's been, well, with what we've we've been doing, you know, we deal with a lot of censorship um, with mail and with our messages and phone calls. Um, we also, we were labeled a security threat group, like immediately from the beginning, uh, as soon as the, the Department of Correction found out that we existed. And we've had, um, I mean, that it's mostly been, been censorship of our, of our materials that we send in. And, and then like when we've started study groups, they've really intentionally moved people, you know, away who like whenever people come together to form a study group, they'll transfer them or move them to a different part of the facility. Um, and, you know, it's sort of hard to say for sure, but we think that there's some level of uh, the state, you know, targeting people who have gotten out, who have been involved with, with our organization, um, you know, while they're on parole. But I can't really, like, prove that. Um, but we, you know, we had a, a comrade who got out a, um, you know, for a simple technical parole violation. They sent a SWAT team and an armored vehicle and, um, you know, snipers to where he was staying to get him, which, you know, it actually, I think they do that for probation violations regularly, which is like equally as fucked up, um, if not more. Um, but yeah, so it's sort of unclear with that, but also like, you know, a lot of the people who are, who are involved with IDOC watch now on the inside were involved in prison struggles, you know, long before IDOC watch became a thing. And some of our comrades have done multiple decades in solitary confinement consecutive you know we've got comrades who have done 30 years in solitary confinement um we and then you know they've experienced really incredible brutality you know like um awful beatings um being chained to beds um being chained like in 
you know, in positions where they can't stand up or lay down with their, you know, with their back straightened out. Like this, this goes back to the nineties. You can read about that stuff in that book down that I, that I mentioned. So, yeah, I mean, as, as an organization on the outside, we haven't, we haven't had much, we haven't dealt with any really significant repression, which is important, you know, for people to know that like you can do this stuff um, and you don't really have to be very afraid, but like people's, I know that people's families who are like operating alone um, trying to provide support um, to you know loved ones who are facing repression on the inside, they've dealt with all kinds of harassment um, from the DOC or from proxies in the past. Um, but I think our our like public presence and our you know the relative like um, privilege that some of the people in, the, in our organization have has you know makes it so they can't quite do that to us. Yeah, and just the conditions and the retaliation that you're describing is very sickening to hear, but it also demonstrates how much power inside organizing has that, you know, the most of the attention is focused on the people behind bars and making sure that they subjugate and quiet them down because they understand the really revolutionary potential that folks on the inside coming together and organizing has to bringing down the system. Totally, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of the current campaigns or past campaigns that IDOC Watch has had? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we've we mostly organized around um, preventing really awful abuses from happening. Um, so, you know, we deal with a lot of um, medical neglect issues, you know, different kinds of, you know, uh, harassment and brutality from guards and... Other just condition, you know, issues with conditions like heat in the prisons or cold in the prisons, um, or lack of access to visitation. One of the big, one of the main issues that we've worked on and, and organized around was uh, bans on contact visitation at some of the prisons, um, which is something that you know people should be paying attention to because more and more they're trying to prevent, they're trying to move towards video visitation only. Is this a development that has arisen because of COVID or is this like something that's been happening even before the pandemic? No, yeah, it's, it, it, it's uh, like a long-term objective of the prison system is to slowly but surely cut back. I mean, if you look at jails, I mean, in Indiana, none of the jails, you can't visit people like face-to-face in person anymore. It's all video visitation. The DOC is moving in that direction too and has been. Uh, and they were doing... We think they were basically experimenting with it for years before the pandemic, where they would they would place a ban on contact visitation at a given facility, claim that it was about trafficking, but like it's not. You know, very 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 little trafficking happens through the visitation as compared to through the vendors and the guards and you know any number of other sources. And they would so they would place bans on contact visitation. They would claim that the like ratio of prisoners who were using drugs was had reached a certain percentage and they would place a ban on contact visitation. So we organized a couple of protests around that and um, worked with families to do that. That was one of the major issues that we've worked on. We've also supported um, comrades who were struggling against indefinite solitary confinement um, a lot. Like there's a, for people who are listening, there's a, um, there's a political prisoner in Indiana named Aaron Isby Israel, who in 2018 won, won a lawsuit um, after 28 years in solitary confinement that where he, you know, the lawsuit found that the DOC had been 
violating constitutional rights to due process by um, not giving him and many, 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 many other prisoners uh, appropriate reviews of their detention. Uh, so we worked with him a lot just to support him through that process um, and help him get the resources he needed. Around COVID, we we did the the you know organizing around trying to get mass release um, uh, for people who had less than a year on their sentence um, and people who were elderly and medically vulnerable without any success, to be honest. Um, they didn't release anyone in Indiana um, and they were just locking people in solitary who had COVID. That was all, you know, there was no treatment of any kind. Um, and then, you know, we, we also have worked with, uh, well, we do a lot of work supporting people who are facing retaliation for standing up for their rights and, uh, and other people's rights on the inside or self-defense, whatever the case may be. Whenever there's a, you know, a small uprising in, in a unit, uh, we try to get in touch with the people who are, who are facing retaliation as a result of that. There was a really awful situation last last spring where at prison there were COVID was just you know ripping through the prisoner population and nothing was being done about it. I think you know there was there was an article that came out that said 92% of people tested had been found to have COVID in this one unit, and then they stopped testing after that. And just started locking people in solitary when they started showing symptoms. Um, and that was Westville Prison. Um, we organized um, a, a demonstration. Well, so there was there was a, a rebellion on on a unit at the prison um, as a you know a response to these conditions. And they started the the pigs started torturing people to get them to snitch on each other. I really awful awful stuff they were doing um i don't want to go into it too much but it was literally torture not not figuratively um you can read about it on our blog if you want to um so we worked with some family members of people who were in that situation to um to stop the torture um and we were actually successful in that we didn't manage to do anything beyond that but we got them to actually just to stop torturing them it makes my blood boil to just consider how much uh, vileness goes be on behind these walls and why it is just so important that folks on the outside work in tangent with folks on the inside so that, you know, they're not left alone to kind of deal with, like you said, these blowbacks uh, when you have folks who are out there and like telling the DOC and telling the wardens that we are watching you and like we care about the folks inside. So we'll continue watching you. That, that just holds I don't know, so much importance to me and so much importance to uh, just making sure that we keep our family members and our community members safe. So can you talk to me or, you know, to our listeners about why it is so important to engage in inside outside organizing and how those who do remain free from captivity can help empower those who are incarcerated? Well, I would say it's important because, you know, doing inside outside solidarity work is important because, you know, there's a lot of people who are using the word abolition and um, talking about abolition who don't really have that much of an idea of what people are actually experiencing who are being um, subjected to the brutality and repression of the prison industrial complex so you know building real relationships with people who are facing that and who have been struggling against it gives you a better idea of what needs to be done and um, how important it is 
I think it makes people more dedicated to the struggle. And uh, for folks on the outside, it's not even as dangerous to do this work. So what would you say is like a first step or how should folks begin to engage if they're looking to truly uh, be a part of abolition as a movement? Yeah, I would say, you know, wherever there are prisons, there are people resisting them. Um, and there, there are probably ways to find those people, like just by, you could probably just Google hunger strike Iowa prison or hunger strike, whatever state you're in prison, and you'll probably find a news article about a hunger strike at some point in the relatively recent past or, you know, uprising or just disturbance or riot, you know, whatever word you want to put in, those are all code for, you know, prisoner resistance um, and we're not code, but the state's just way to use it way to talk about it. So yeah, like just reaching out to people who are named in those articles is a really good way to start. Uh, if there isn't already a network of, of activist prisoners in your state, which there probably is, um, there's, yeah, there are networks of activist prisoners in almost every state, but, you know, just from what I know off the top of my head. Um, and, and then, yeah, just write to them, um, give them your phone number. You know, I, I talk to people all the time on the phone. The, some people don't like to do that, but I think it's definitely the like most most you know best way to actually build a relationship with someone is to talk to them on the phone, do video visits, send them books, you know, and just start to build relationships and yeah, and then just see what they need and what 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 you can do and find other people around you who are interested in doing the same sort of thing as a starting point. And all great tips. I mean, I I did the same thing. I think I when I first became engaged in abolition and truly understanding you know, what it means to be a prison abolitionist. I Googled, uh, I think it was uprising Virginia prisons and found a bunch of stuff about Red Onion State Prison um, mm -hmm. and saw that, you know, there had been this, this very powerful and years long, you know, like you said, resistance uh, happening just miles away, you know, in, in my state, you know, people who ha had heard about abolition before I, I've been born, you know what I'm saying? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's really important to demonstrate how how it is just a simple click of a Google search, you know, to get engaged, start getting engaged in this work. So thank you for that. Lastly, on Race Capital, we just like to ask all of our guests, what is your privilege and how do you use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy? So uh, Nick, can you tell our listeners what is your privilege and how are you using that to disrupt the myth of white supremacy? Uh, I'm a white person, so that's, I have white privilege. I think, you know, I think I'm using it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy by helping to get people out of prison, you know, fight the prison industrial complex uh, and empower people who, you know, are subjected to white supremacy in various ways. Is there any way that folks can keep up with IDOC Watch? Um, and are there any upcoming events or calls to action you want to share with the people? Yeah. Uh, well, so I, I imagine you've already mentioned this on the show, but on Juneteenth in, in Terre Haute, Indiana, um, our comrades in the New African Liberation Collective, um, who are, they're also members of IDOC Watch, are um, having an event, a Juneteenth event. Um, so you can support the New African Liberation Collective by um, donating to their land fund and their freedom fund on their website, which is newafricanliberation.org. Um, also, IDOC Watch is working with another um, political prisoner in who has family in Indianapolis who's got a petition for clemency um, named Leon Benson. Um, and we are 
working with his family to organize a hopefully a mass demonstration in in Indianapolis on July 25th to put pressure on the state to give him clemency, give him and other people who are trying to get clemency and compassionate release, um, yeah, to free them. So you can support that by coming to the demonstration and or by just promoting promoting it online or by donating to IDOC Watch. We have a Patreon um, and there is a, there's a fundraiser specifically for this demonstration that's on our on our uh, Facebook page, and it's on freelyonbenson.org, and on Freely on Benson, the his Facebook page. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for uh, being on the show, and I hope to you know have you all on in the future. Cool. Yeah. Thank well, you. you And they're all crying across the ocean And they're crying across the land And they will to we all come to understand None of us are free None of us are free None of us are free One of us are changed None of us are free well, and Kwame, I really appreciate you being on. I wanted you to take some time to kind of describe your journey from a colonized or what Shaka Shakur calls a traumatized mentality into a new African liberationist perspective. And also just expand a little bit on what are the goals of new African liberation and NALC as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I consider myself to have always been somewhat socially or culturally conscious just because of the way that I was raised and who my grandfather was. He was a leading revolutionary activist in my city during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, so the way he raised my dad and my uncles was just to study the teachings of Malcolm X and our leaders who stood on revolutionary nationalist principles and ideology. So that's always been in it at the same time, coming up in street organizations and um, just a leadership all across the board, whether it be in the prison system or in the streets for the past 30 plus years. Uh, a lot of people from my generation didn't have those principles and that guidance to stand on, right? So we developed the colonial mentality, uh, what Rams would call quote unquote criminal mentality, right? Which is just us reacting to the social and economic and that we've been put into. When I came into the prisons, I've always had, I've been in a way to organize the organizations on the inside. And then in 2015, when I came in contact with Conrad Shaka Shakur, he seen an organizing and educating what I was doing, and he had laid on the book on me, Stand Up, Struggle Forward, by Conrad Sainuki Shakur. And rest in peace, he just passed away this past week. With his book, just transformed my entire mentality and gave me a perspective on nationality and nationalism and what it means to be a new African. 
And so can you talk to me a little bit more about the formation of the NALC and how you all came to um, understand that forming this organization, right, and organizing folks on the inside is imperative to bringing down the entire colonial structure as you see it. So once I became a citizen of Republican New Africa, and I'm looking around the country and I'm seeing all these dozens of New African formations and organizations who are all standing on the same creed, the same New African Declaration of Independence, and the same New African Constitution, pushing the same theory and ideology, but we were operating all these different splinter groups, and it was reducing our own power. So. The same role that I played in my street organization of making sure that we're standing on that infrastructure and that law and the way that things are supposed to go so that we can really get the growth and development concept out there. I just adopted that same mentality within the New African Nation and that led to a shocker and I founded the New African Liberation Collective to serve as a cadre organization to help develop individual cadre, but also to network around the country and organize all the cadre organizations and those in leadership positions so that we can rebuild our national infrastructure and the new African independence movement and kind of develop a sort of national strategy or united front. That way, we had a clear direction and we were able to garner the international support that we need to become recognized as a sovereign, independent nation on these shores that has the international right to govern ourselves. So, what we really try to push with the Republic of New Africa is the right to have a self-government. When we was brought over here, it was by force. And then once we were so-called emancipated in 1865, instead of having the right to form our own separate government and nation, they forced us into binding contracts to our social security numbers. So in 1968, the provisional government of the Republic of New was formed, and that's all the, all the organizations underneath that. Our objective is to push that forward and make sure that the cries of our people are heard to free the land and be able to become sovereign individuals. Yes, and I'm glad you brought up Free the Land. This is the, basically the motto of the NALC to Free the Land, and I know that your family specifically has some deep connections to the land, uh, specifically in Terry Howe, Indiana, and um, we're talking about emancipation. Juneteenth is coming up this weekend. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about the struggle for your family's land and uh, the height center in Terry Howe? So like I mentioned to you um, earlier, my grandpa was one of the leading revolutionary activists in Terre Haute up here um, during the 60s and 70s, really during the high tide of the black liberation in New Africa and liberation struggles in this country. In 1970, uh, he and his comrades had founded the Height Center, now known as the Booker T. Washington Community Center. And it was a community liberation center meant to meet the immediate needs of our people. Like I was up until I was 17, you could go to the center for health care, for child care, and they had a food pension, a soup kitchen that fed the people. And for some people, this was their only meal of the day. So now that the city has gentrified the building and took over it, they're using it for its own purposes. And they had someone from outside of our community as the director 
run Eurocentric public school system programs out of it. And for the last decade or so, every time we try to utilize the classroom and the soup kitchen of the gym, or even when people from the New African churches try to have a choir practice there, we're denied access to it. Or when we all that usually we have to pay the city or whoever the occupiers are. So with NLC the past two years, uh, we've organized the New African People's Assembly to introduce the people to the concept of self-determination and what that looks like. And one of the first principles of a revolutionary is going amongst the people and asking them, what can we do for you? How can we serve the needs of the people, of the proletariat and the colonized community? And what they've been telling us, it doesn't matter if they're from 80 years old all the way down to 20, they're telling us we want NALC to fight for the high center. We need to get back access for some type of ownership of the building. So um, that's our main struggle right now in Terrell is trying to fight the gentrification, not only of our institutions, but of our land. Everywhere in the New African community, you've got the city coming down and tearing these houses down and these structures and churches before we can come in and occupy it or buy it. And now they're commercializing these zones. And where they're putting up government houses. And the reformists and the reactionaries and the integrationists are looking at this as it's a good thing. They're bringing government houses in for low-income families. Now, what that means is that now we will never get back control of that land because it now belongs to the city and the government, right? Mm. And another thing we want to raise awareness to, not only in Terre Haute, but around the country, is when they put these government houses and these hood houses into the community, it's just like slavery on a plantation back in the day. And so, yeah, you talk a lot about the plantation and the, the liberation work that y'all are doing um, on the outside, right, to dismantle the plantation on the outside. Can you talk to me a little bit more about what it's been like living on the plantation during COVID um, behind bars and what that struggle has looked like for you? Yeah, I mean, as we all know, this is nothing but modern-day slavery, right? These slave camps replaced the, the shadow slave plantations. So they don't care about us. It's, it's, it's the same struggles that's going on on the outside, whether it be education, um, jobs, healthcare, the same things going on in here, just on a whole other level. We're here, we don't got the NAACP, the Black Lives Matter, and the Al Sharptons to come out every time something happens. Every time one of us get beat while we're handcuffed or maced or attacked by canine dogs. So when the COVID hit, it was no different. The same things that we were seeing going on in New African and Latino communities was going on here. Uh, people's dying, these, these prisons, these plantations have some of the highest concentrations of um, positive COVID numbers in, in, in the country, in the world, right? And, and what impact did the, uh, George Floyd and the movement for black lives have on the organizing work on the inside? Uh, if any, because I know y'all been doing work before, like the, uh, the tragedy and the slaughter of George Floyd. Yeah, I mean, with me personally and the political education that I do, all it, it did really was heighten the contradictions. So when I've been trying to explain 
with your brothers in here and people on the outside for years with the contradiction in, in Black Lives Matter and the lack of programs and political education. Yet it doesn't matter if every time one of our people gets gunned down the lynch in the street, we organize a protest or a demonstration. And Black Lives Matter has the ability to mass organize tens of thousands of people in major cities all across the country at any given moment, right? And what I've been telling one is when our people show up and you see all of our people out there in the streets, that's not two or three thousand Black Lives Matter members. That's two or three thousand oppressed new Africans and poor Euro-Americans and Latinos just ready to rebel and resist and fight for liberation. But when they get out there in the streets, the only thing they see is Black Lives Matter in the NAACP or the National Urban League. They don't see us out there, so they have to struggle within the confines of what these organizations have laid down. So at the end of the day, they're not walking away with a heightened consciousness. They're not walking away with any programs or anything that they can move forward in the community, right? They're going back the next day with the same American mentality, colonial mentality that they had, going to work for 8, 10, 12 hours a day. Nothing's changed. So when everything was jumping off last summer, I had a different mentality in a different view than what most people did because I understand the dynamics in this country, especially amongst our people, that unless there was real revolutionary leadership out there on the ground, it wasn't going to go anywhere. And uh, that's exactly what happened is that everything died down and there was no structure or programs built from that, right? Like, we wasn't giving the people anything because we in the movement wasn't properly organized for the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years the way that we should have been when that jumped off. So, it really, so as far as the question on the inside, it, I mean, it didn't do anything. Like, we've been rebelling and been resisting here uh, on a daily basis since the inception, right? Yes, and that, that's definitely where I get most of my encouragement from, right? And how I try to um, get folks to be uh, Black Lives Matter is just like, there are people who are, like you said, creating programs, sustainable programs, programs, and, and Black Lives Matter has never been concerned with that. Um, but being that, like, so many folks have been run over to the idea of abolition, right, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, what are your words and encouragement for those on the outside who may not be actively engaged in the struggle? Yeah, as you see it, um, what are your goals as a person for those people? Do your research. You know what I'm saying? The organizations are out there, the formations are out there. And that's what we, I tell people all the time. Like, the reason that we're not on the forefront or that the masses aren't behind us isn't because of a lack of substance in our programs or our political education. It's that the people just don't know that we exist. Like I said, all them people out there in the street, they're ready to get on board with something like this. They're ready for revolution. They're, they're looking for liberation, right? So, um, my words of encouragement would just be find the organizations in your area and get involved. And so, those just listening that are already involved and that are part of these organizations, we got to get serious. Like, we got to start organizing on a higher level. 
And we got to stand on our revolutionary principles of going amongst the people, having these people's assemblies, and going on the campuses and planting these seeds so that we can bring these programs to the people. Because right now, like, we have a sickness, you know what I'm saying? Our people are being held in bondage and captivity. And as a result of that, we're suffering from all these different mental illnesses that come along with that, right? So it's on us as revolutionary and abolitionists to administer that cure to the people. And the way that comes is through decolonization programs and implementing self-determination into the minds of the colonizing oppressed peoples. I can listen to you speak all day. I'm going to need like a CD recorded track um, <laughs> to, to infiltrate my subconsciousness at night. But lastly, we like to ask all the guests on this capital to tell us what is their privilege and how you use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy. So Kwame, what is your privilege and how do you use that to disrupt the myth of white supremacy? My privilege, I would say, is my position within the new African nation and the prison movement and the organizations that I have behind me, which is Prison Life Matter and the New African Liberation Collective. And through this organizing and this education and the mobilization that we've been doing, educating people, every person that unable to raise their consciousness and get them involved and get them to engage, that's disrupting white supremacy. That's disres- disrupting, you know what I'm saying, the structure that they've established since the really rich indoctrination of our people, right? So, with prison life matter, being able to take what I feel like Jordan Jackson and our forefathers and sisters wanted to see the prison movement turn into, being able to turn the national prison movement in the United States into a national coordinating committee, and now with us being able to break that down into regional organizing committees like we're doing in Indiana and in Virginia with VPAC, it's a beautiful thing, you know what I'm saying? And that's one of the biggest threats to white supremacy is when they're able to mass organize not just new Africans and natives, but when we have Europeans and poor white people all behind this prison life matter movement and in support of what we're doing in prisons and, and states all across this empire. Thank you. And also, do you have any last words for the people or any events that are uh, being led by NALC, your family, DPAC? Yeah, um, NALC, our non-profit, the Church and Culture Development Fund, and VPAC will be in Terre Haute, in my neighborhood on 12th and Crest, Terre Haute, Indiana, on, on June 19th to combat the neo-colonial agents and the gentrification taking place in my city. So we encourage all those in the region and around the country to travel with us and stand in solidarity for liberation and self-determination. Well, thank you so much, Kwame, for taking the time out of your day to come and speak with me. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on Freedom Land.
My name is Asada Shakur, and I was born and raised in the United States. I am a descendant of Africans who were kidnapped and brought to the Americas as slaves. I spent my early childhood in the racist, segregated South. I later moved to the northern part of the country where I realized that black people were equally victimized by racism and oppression. I grew up and became a political activist, participating in student struggles, the anti-war movement, and most of all, in the movement for the liberation of African Americans in the United States. I later joined the Black Panther Party, an organization that was targeted by the COINTELPRO program, a program that was set up by the Federal Bureau of Investigation to eliminate all political opposition to the U.S. government's policies, to destroy the black liberation movement in the United States, to discredit activists, and to eliminate potential leaders. Under the COINTELPRO program, many political activists were harassed, imprisoned, murdered, or otherwise neutralized. As a result of being targeted by COINTELPRO, I, like many other young people, was faced with the threat of prison, underground, exile, or death. The FBI, with the help of local police agencies, systematically fed false accusations and fake news articles to the press, accusing me and other activists of crimes we did not commit. Although in my case the charges were eventually dropped or I was eventually acquitted, the national and local police agencies created a situation where based on their false accusations against me, any police officer could shoot me on sight. It was not until the Freedom of Information Act was passed in the mid-70s that we began to see the scope of the United States government's persecution of political activists. At this point, I think that it is important to make one thing very clear. I have advocated and I still advocate revolutionary changes in the structure and in the principles that govern the United States. I advocate self-determination for my people and for all oppressed people inside the United States. I advocate an end to capitalist exploitation, the abolition of racist policies, the eradication of sexism, and the elimination of political repression. If that is a crime, then I am totally guilty. To make a long story short, I was captured in New Jersey in 1973 after being shot with both arms held in the air and then shot again from the back. I was left on the ground to die, and when I did not, I was taken to a local hospital where I was threatened, beaten, and tortured. In 1977, I was convicted in a trial that can only be described as a legal lynching. In 1979, I was able to escape with the aid of some of my fellow comrades. I saw this as a necessary step 
not only because I was innocent of the charges against me, but because I knew that the racist legal system in the United States, I would receive no justice. I was also afraid that I would be murdered in prison. I later arrived in Cuba, where I am currently living in exile as a political refugee. The New Jersey State Police and other law enforcement officials say they want to see me brought to justice. But I would like to know what they mean by justice. Is torture justice? I was kept in solitary confinement for more than two years, mostly in men's prisons. Is that justice? My lawyers were threatened with imprisonment and imprisoned. Is that justice? I was tried by an all-white jury without even the pretext of impartiality and then sentenced to life in prison plus 33 years. Is that justice? Let me emphasize that justice for me is not the issue I am addressing here. It is justice for my people that is at stake. When my people receive justice, I am sure that I will receive it too. In a slaveocracy, all of us are simply out on bail. The U.S. is a nation that continues to gain its wealth and power through the subjugation of oppressed nations, their diasporas, and the working poor. The U.S. slave camps, prisons, and plantations will not demolish themselves. It's up to us to uplift and support those continuing to fight for self-determination, all while trapped behind bars. Not only for their sake, but for ours as well. Because the truth is, none of us are free until all of us are free. That is all for this week on Race Capital. Race Capital airs every Wednesday at 10 a.m. on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. If you like Race Capital and want to support the work that we do, become a patron by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash racecapital. Reminder, you can listen to Race Capital on all your favorite podcasting platforms. As always, solidarity to those engaged in the struggle, and thank you for listening. <laughs>